I'm Barbara Bray. Welcome to my Rethinking Learning podcast, where I have conversations with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and change agents. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited today. I've been wanting to talk to Allison Zabuda for so long. I'm so glad you're here, Allison. I'm so glad to spend time with you. Absolutely. My great pleasure. Well, I always tell everyone I like to boast a little bit about you. Is that okay? (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. So Allison is an education consultant specializing in curriculum assessment and instruction. And we could go into, you know, how we could be probably talking for a few hours. You know that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> around, right. around each one of a these. A five-part series. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, at least we'll just kind of let people know what's going on with you because you have so much. And so um, Allison works with national and international educators to design learning experiences that are relevant, meaningful, challenging, and appropriate. Isn't that what we all should be doing? Absolutely. <laughs> And, you know, you started out as a high school social studies teacher for eight years. You know, I was a social studies teacher. No, I didn't know that. Do you know, it's kind of strange. Almost everyone I've been talking to either was a social studies teacher or a music teacher. (laughs) (laughs) It's really weird. That's how they started. So um, the thing that amazes me about you, Allison, is that you've authored 11 books. Yes. That's a lot of books. <laughs> a lot of books, I know. <laughs> it's amazing. It's and you co-developed a series of online courses. And we can talk about a lot of these, but welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, so I always start, I like to have, a, you know, learn a little bit about you. Mm. And can you tell us a little bit about your journey, your, your, you know, you and your family? Yeah. So I was a high school social studies teacher in Newtown, Connecticut. So I spent all of my eight years of teaching in the same space. And when I um, was pregnant with my first child, I was starting to look around and think through and figure out how can I continue to influence the thinking, not just of my students, but also my peers and colleagues. And I had an opportunity to write an article that turned into my very first book with my um, teaching partner at the time, Mary Tomeno. And the idea of starting to think about a more flexible way of working. And so I'm one of the odd ducks of moving from a classroom teacher to a consultant. And at the ripe age of 29, I actually (laughs) began my consulting career. So I've been at it for um, close to 19 years now and really trying to think about how can we continue to grow the heart, the energy, and the joy of what teaching and learning looks like, feels like, and sounds like. That's been my... um, mission from the very beginning in the classroom, but also thinking about how we can continue to create that level of joy and energy and passion and focus while there's so much anxiety and stress and worry that not only our students are demonstrating, but clearly our teachers are as well. So that's what I do. I mean, Really, 19 years and 11 books is pretty <laughs> incredible. <laughs> well, but the, the, the secret of writing those 11 books is those 
only one, <laughs> only one book was written by me as a solo enterprise. And one of the things that I really find to be so incredibly enriching is to think and imagine and co-create with other um, authors and consultants. And the interesting part about that is it's as much um, <laughs> something that I do to continue to grow my thinking as it is something that I, I do on behalf of a readership. And I, I think it's always a little bit selfish <laughs> in that to be in a space where you're imagining ideas together with another author uh, is just so enriching and enlightening. And so I basically say to myself, I've done my, um, <laughs> my doctorate work as a homegrown <laughs> experience as opposed to um, engaged in that formal enterprise. Well, I, I wrote two books in, um, with Kathleen mm. uh, McClaskey, and I find that um, I'm writing another. I mean, I'm, I'm excited about writing because I love to write. Yeah. I love to learn. And you're right. When you write with other people or even collaborate with others, that's professional learning. Yes. It's that personal piece that you talk about in yeah. your, all your books. I've read several of your books and I'm um, excited about, well, you know, we're both kind of saying the same thing, but in different ways. But it's like, um, and we're going to bring up that in a minute because I still want you to talk about you and your family because you have two children. I do. I have two children and... Um, we lived in a, in a small town in Connecticut. Um, my son was in um, grade two and my daughter was in preschool, going to start kinder, kindergarten. And I was looking around to think about um, what kind of public school experience did I want my kids to have as part of um, sort of growing through a system. And so we actually settled in on Virginia Beach. I'd been doing some consulting work there for the past couple of years at that point. And the, the level of um, um, innovation that was happening there at the time, as well as the level of diversity, the opportunity to see um, what's possible when you have a large-scale school system as opposed to um, a regional small-town system. To me, I think as I want to continue to um, have my kids experience a range of perspectives and points of view and diversity, I also wanted to make sure that they had um, a, a high-quality education. So we moved to Virginia Beach, where the population is uh, student population is sixty eight thousand students, um, eleven high schools. Goodness knows how many middle and elementary schools. Um, but my kids have moved all the way through. So right now I have a ninth grader and a twelfth grader. So starting to Whoa. think about college and university and that kind of thing. But they have really thrived in their experience there, and my kids have been um, also continuing to coach me on the idea of what's personalized learning, what it looks like to them. Um, so, um, you know, it's interesting to see how they find um, joy and interest and passion. And sometimes it shows up in school and sometimes it shows up based on uh, an area that they're interested in, whether or not it's a clean through line. It just depends on how, if the teacher knows about it. And so again, that's that's my um, passion and interest. 
Oh, see, I have two children that are the same ages apart, but mine are grown. Yeah. So what are their names? Um, my my son's name is Kuda. So that's a, a funny name. Um, How do you spell that? <laughs> C-U-D-A. And oh. uh, we named him Kuda because I married um, my, my, my husband. I married my husband and his last name was Zamuda and nobody could pronounce it. And so <laughs> I, I got very frustrated because I had to start pronouncing Z as in zebra, M as in Mary. So the interesting part of that uh, is um, when I, we went to Bermuda for our honeymoon, everybody could pronounce it flawlessly. And so I was trying to figure out why could they do that. And finally I asked and they said, well, because it rhymes. So I said, that's it. Whenever we have kids, we're only going to name our kids rhyming names. And so (laughs) on our way home from our honeymoon that we came up with uh, Kuda if it was a boy and Daruda if it was a girl. Now, my daughter's name is Zoe. So (laughs) we decided one rhyming name was enough and uh, we wanted to go after a very different name, uh, an alliteration and a tribute to ZZ Top. So we go old school. (laughs) I love ZZ Top. That's right. (laughs) So So, yes, Kuda James Zamuda. It's the only thing that my mother and my mother-in-law agree on. So (laughs) really? That is, oh, how fun. Yep. So, um, yeah, we'll have to follow their journey. That's kind of exciting Yes, with them, you know, because when they go to, um, especially since you talked about their passions and, yes, you know, and what they're, it'd be interesting what they choose and what they choose to do and with, if college or not, you know. So um, what was it like when you were a student, Yeah, when you were growing up? It's interesting. I grew up in the, um, so I was born in 1971. Um, and in that time growing up in the late 70s through elementary school and into the 80s, um, uh, there were magnet schools as part of my public school experience. So I did go to a science and technology magnet school in the, in the late 70s. Um, there was a planetarium at my elementary school. Um, there also was um, our first, I think I, that was my first time I was on an Apple IIe. So we learned the logo with a little teeny tiny triangle as the turtle. Uh, and so really the power of that, uh, that kind of experience Um, And the interest in how you can begin to tap areas that can continue to enrich the learning. The other part that I remember about my elementary school is uh, we had Olympics of the mind. And I don't know. Oh, I love. Yes, I know that. Yeah. And so, so again, these kinds of great roots of um, gifted education infused into a regular public school so everybody had access to it. Um, To me, that's how I grew up. And again, Montclair, New Jersey is known for its significant amount of diversity and choice. Um, In middle school, it was an open house system. So, So no walls, that kind of thing. So again, it was interesting to see that the level of um, flexibility um, and innovation in the 70s and early 80s is 
eerily similar <laughs> to the kinds of things that people are interested in now. And so that's the 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 way that I grew up. And then I moved into a very traditional um, high school program. I went on to Yale University. And um, when I was in Yale, I was... Um, thinking I was thinking about going to law school, but I was also thinking about teaching. So I was in the teacher preparation program starting my um, sophomore year and graduated with a teaching license as a result of my time there. And I decided to um, tear up my LSAT scores and even open the envelope and decided to um, jump full-fledged into teaching. I'm so glad you did. <laughs> uh, my niece is at Yale right now. It's, yeah. a, it's an amazing school. So how fun for you is, you know, knowing that you were in a school, in elementary school like that, uh, I wish, I, you know, I was teaching in one of the, those. So mm-hmm. it, it was really nice. And then it changed with no child left behind. It, so we're trying to bring back, especially when you talk about middle school, having them open like that is what we're talking about now. That's right. Yeah. And I think the idea, the idea too, of really trying to think about how we're growing, not just the innovation aspect, but how we're growing the social emotional aspect of it. I mean, I have um, two kids in, in very recent memory that went through a middle school experience that wasn't necessarily, um, the healthiest, um, from a cultural point of view, and trying to really think about um, how we can continue to capture the energy and life as they're transitioning from elementary to middle school, so that we're continuing to grow the thinking, we're tr- but also we're trying to continue to grow the compassion and the empathy, as well as metacognition, as part of their middle school experience. So I, that, that's something that's very much on my mind right now. And middle school does need to look fundamentally different um, than what a high school program should look like. So I worked in middle schools in Oakland Unified, and um, I can say with the diversity and the issues that the, um, many of the children were from poor, high poverty, you know, at-risk and here I come in, I'm privileged, white. I didn't understand what they went through. So some of the schools we worked in, it was part of a group called Core Values. It was a grant. Mm. Um, we ha- looked at the values, in which now I look at were the habits of mind. It's kind of like it's all coming back. Yes. But but if we took the time to really get to know those kids and spend some time and build the relationships first, get yeah. to know their families especially when they don't feel they have any um, relationship with the school. You know, they, they just drop the kids off or, and they may not even have a parent at home. You know, we didn't know. So um, you're so right that middle school is such an important time, not only for those kids, but for all kids. Yes, I totally agree. And you know, it's interesting, um, the, the institutional knowledge of faculty um, is... Uh, it's an asset, but also um, a challenge when people start to see initiatives roll back through again. And, and so w- it's not um, different names for the same idea. I think a lot of what we're after, especially in the 70s and the early 80s, 
was fresh and inventive and innovative. And the idea of how can we continue to create these kinds of timeless experiences where we believe that what we're doing is in the best interest of students first and foremost, but it also grows the energy and the vitality of the entire classroom culture and school culture. And the opportunity to actually move into that space with the, um, not just the vision, but also the willingness of faculty to continue to grow their possibilities and imaginings of what it is that they can hope for themselves and for their students. Wow. Just what you wrote there, I just want to capture that. Because that's, I mean, what you said was just exactly where I wanted to go. Because I feel like we are so immersed in the status quo. We have some people that, some teachers that have a real hard time changing and they they don't even know what to expect, and and we have to give them those experiences. But there's so much they feel like they have to cover, and I I think that um, giving them time to really explore, um, just what you how you said that you went you said before that you taught for eight years and then you went into consulting. Did and and that was in the consulting started in Virginia Beach. No, and the consultant was, I was starting consult in Connecticut. Um, So I was doing work with understanding by design. I had um, just a a great opportunity um, to meet Jay McTie and Grant Wiggins very early in my career. And um, they were so gracious to sort of take on the role of my, um, what I I affectionately called both of them, my professional dads. And so that level of mentorship and coaching, but also to feel like a colleague of them at a very um, young age has, was so truly influential in my life. And the opportunity to continue to think and grow um, through the work that I was doing at uh, a regional service center in Connecticut, working with magnet schools in the Hartford area. So part of that work continued to grow my thinking about the possibility of magnet schools uh, all over again, and also starting to think about um, how to make school more interesting for both kids and adults. That basically is sort of about how, when people ask me on an airplane, what do you do? <laughs> That's basically the way that I sort of quickly describe um, my job description. And I, I think... I think the interesting part of how we're starting to begin to imagine it, especially right now, I mean, I'm so fascinated by um, my daughter, who, again, is in ninth grade. She said to me in the summer, "Um, Mom, I want to learn how to play the ukulele. I'm like, "Uh, have you ever, like, picked up the instrument before? She goes, no, no. Um, But I uh, took guitar, like, three years ago, like for six months. And she's like, I don't think it's going to be that bad. So a mom can, if you drive me, I'm going to spend my money, buy a ukulele, and then I'm going to teach myself on YouTube. And I'm like, and again, you're, you're starting to think about it's that from a, from a, a generative point of view, the idea is that if a student or a child is interested in something, the way they go about it organically is wildly different from 
what we as educators might imagine a structure and approach. And the level of commitment she had, I asked her, I was like, so what do you want to do with the, the, the ukulele? And she goes, it's to me, it's a stress reliever. And so she's like, I like to sing. And I'm thinking that school is going to be rough when I'm going into this uh, high school IB program. Um, so I, I really would like to just learn the basics to play the ukulele, and then um, I'll be off and running. So I think um, that, that, that type of energy and vitality uh, is something that we can continue to capture outside of school as well as inside of school. Well, that is so cool. How is she doing now? Oh, she's, she's doing great. She basically plays the ukulele to unwind. And so she has, she has no kind of professional ambitions of being Grace Vanderwall to take her ukulele on the road. But at the same time, she I, I think the idea of having an outlet is so incredibly important for kids, especially an outlet that is healthy and, and helpful. Um, so, and that's something that every, um, not just child, but a, um, adult needs to continue to think about and figure out a way of unwinding, but also actually giving themselves a level of energy and joy. Well, you know, it, it is interesting because you're bringing up how she said, I'm going to teach myself. And that's, you know, our, I mean, I, even me, I was thinking, oh, I, I wanted to learn the ukulele. And a friend of mine is, said, you can take this class. And I'm thinking, well, the class is on Wednesday and I have this. Maybe I'll just go to YouTube, but I don't go there first. I always think of the class first because of my age and my background where the kids, you know, I said I wanted to learn how to, I said something to my daughter about, I wanted to learn different ways to um, tie scarves. And she goes, oh, let me show you. <laughs> she went to YouTube and she showed me three or four sites and I, I learned it in like 10 minutes a few. And I'm thinking, well, if that's what it's like, then what is school? Yeah. And so it's interesting too, because yeah. to start thinking about, it's not just a, a, a learning plan, right? So uh, yeah. this is what I need. These are the resources and um, this is what I'm going to do first. And this is what I'm going to do next. It, it's actually connected to the motivation or the purpose why am I doing it in the first place? So to play the ukulele, to learn how to play the ukulele to unwind is very different from learning to play the ukulele because you're trying to incorporate it into some kind of professional repertoire. And so the interesting part of thinking about how we're trying to grow students' um, discovery, students' ability to design action plans, whether it's something they're doing in a genius hour or something they're doing as part of capstone or something that's as organic as uh, my daughter learning how to play the ukulele. Um, to me, you're trying to think about that level of skill set that oftentimes in school, the teacher is making so many of the decisions on behalf of the student. And when the teacher is starting to wrap their minds around it and say, well, if I um, am not so bossy, <laughs> if I give them a little bit of latitude, what are they going to do with it? And so really trying to make sure that as we're talking about the idea of personalized learning, when we move from this kind of 
teacher-generated space to a more student-generated space, that it doesn't create what I call um, affectionately um, instructional whiplash. So you can't move from one end of the spectrum to the other and expect it to go well. I know that a handful of kids would absolutely thrive in it, but the rest of the students will look at you and say, what is it that we're supposed to do exactly? And so trying to create an opportunity to have students understand and appreciate when I, when I do have a little more control over what I'm doing or how I'm doing it or when I'm turning it in or how I'm going to demonstrate my learning to create levels of scaffolding, levels of opportunity, um, and also continue to get a, a clean gauge from students on a level of not just comfort, but also um, uh, commitment and um, the idea that they should feel like they're uh, in a space where their struggle is necessary and healthy as opposed to it being um, too much. You know, they call that productive productive struggle. And and we're afraid to do that. I mean, some teachers feel like, oh, that that child is having too much. I got to go over and help them. And they end up doing it for them. And that's not healthy. It's it's that idea of Vygotsky with his own yes. uh, yeah. proximal development. We, If we can just give them, you know, a little nudge and point them and then give them time to challenge themselves a little bit. And I love that idea of purpose, passion and purpose. That's kind of a uh, direction. Now, um, I've been listening to some of you know the interviews you've had and some of the things you talked about. I, yeah, I don't know if you're open to share what happened to you and how you had a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think you're referring to my stroke. <laughs> so yes, that uh, was oh, you, it really gave me chills when I heard about it. Yeah. So I had a stroke at the. Um, young age of, uh, I think 37 or 38. It's a close, it's about nine years. And, uh, it was, it was terrifying in that I was at my daughter's soccer field. She was in kindergarten and, um, I was trying to stand up to cheer her on and I couldn't stand up. So it turned out that I, um, um, uh, fell over and immediately, um, the ambulance was called and I was rushed to a hospital and, they um, uh, performed surgery. So it was that serious. And when I woke up, I was not able to um, speak. I, I think I had um, like two or three words in my vocabulary. And I was also paralyzed on my right side. So the paralysis actually worked its way out after about 72 hours. Um, but the, the, the speech didn't. And so it was interesting because I had... Uh, turned in my the one book that I wrote by myself. I turned that into the editor, and I was I was I was conscious the whole the whole time what during the stroke and that kind of thing. So the interesting part is my mental faculties were fine, but my ability to explain my thinking was so highly tortured. And so I knew <laughs> that in the back of my mind that six weeks or eight weeks down the road, this book was going to come back to me and I would have to edit it one last time. And so trying to think about how to grow my capacity to speak, to write, to communicate, 
um, the the kind of consulting work that um, you and I do, Barbara, are it, it's something that's organic. It's grounded in what the school or the district is imagining. It's not it's not a canned presentation. Every site is different. And I was told um, as I was going through rehab, um, one of the first um, people that was working with me, she said that I probably was not able, was not ever going to be able to work again. So they, oh. they, in that line of work, and she's like, wow. like the interesting part about that is like, I think on some level, when people say that you can't do something, it. it it creates this level of I'll show you. <laughs> so <laughs> Good. I was um, I was absolutely committed to learning how to speak again. Um, but my daughter in kindergarten had a much better vocabulary than I did for at least two to three months. Um, and again, it is so devastating to think about how the work that you love the the writing that you <laughs> that you sort of thrive in the conversations that grow you none of that was accessible to me and it it has been a long long road i'm still in an active state of recovery hopefully my speech is <laughs> continuing to be uh clean enough but it's something that i still not only uh, actively struggle with but also it continues to give me a different level of compassion for what people are going through. And on some level, people might say to me like, hey, I would never know that. But at the same time, in the, in the, back, of, in the back of my mind, I always think about what's, what's happening, what has happened to particular individuals where on the surface, as you get to know someone, you don't necessarily see but at the same time, to grow that level of concern and compassion is so important to me. Well, um, just no, you, you. I mean, your your speech is just beautiful. Now, I mean, knowing that you had to go through that, I mean, just sitting there in the bed when they tell you that must have been just, yeah, just awful. I just can't. So I. I had an accident when I was 39, mm-hmm. so the very same, and I broke my neck and my leg, and I couldn't feel my hands, and I was a dental hygienist at that mm. time, Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I was teaching dental hygiene, and I could thought, what am I going to do? Because I couldn't feel my hand. Did not lose, luckily they did surgery, and mm-hmm. I didn't lose the feeling. I was starting to lose all my feeling. But it does something to you. It does. When you go through a life-altering um, event like that. Well, and it also gives you clarity on um, your identity. And yeah. if, if like, in, in, in at that time, I think that my identity was so tied up in my work, trying to think about how to, what, what if I couldn't do the work anymore? Who, who was I? What, what could I, what value could I add to the world? And trying to think about whether or not, um, I was m- making a difference and, you know, it's, it's, it's stunning. I, um, when that happens to you, it's unfair. And at the same time, um, I think on some level, um, better for it. I wouldn't say that necessarily when I was going through the first six months to a year. Um, but I, I don't, I don't miss 
what I, who I used to be. I think that's, I think I've gotten, um, a level of peace with that. But like I said, <laughs> it's nine years yeah. of hard work. <laughs> that was hard work. I mean, I know that it was really tough for me, um, because I didn't know, but it did clarify my goals. Yeah. I always wanted to do, I mean, I was teaching, but I wanted to explore it in a, a deeper. Yeah. So it made me get off. <laughs> it made me fight. And, and it sounds like that's what you're a fighter. Yeah. You're not giving up. And <laughs> in fact, um, you started learning personalized in 2012. So when was that after you, you know, this happened, that was six years ago. So it was four years after that happened. Is that oh, or nine, no, no uh, three so, years? Yeah. I'm trying to think 2010 was when the stroke happened. Yep. So, yeah, so it's going to be going on nine years. Um, So I I started going back to work um, in the probably way too early, like six to eight weeks. And it was interesting. um, Jay and Grant were very much um, part of uh, my recovery as well, as well as my um, uh, immediate family. And, you know, part of it was just really um, the, the grace, the gracefulness of the school clients that I was working with, they wanted to see me, they wanted to make sure I was okay. And they were willing to, um, uh, help me on my own personal journey. So I'm so indebted to that connection and relationships as part of my recovery. Um, and again, I think part of it is really trying to create a level of connection and community um, that's the only way you make through things like this. So that's probably when you went to, um, you started your, your company learning personalized. Yeah. So I, yeah. So I started, um, my company, um, and again, it's a solo endeavor. (laughs) So, (laughs) so my company is just me. Um, I started that, um, right when I started my consulting, um, work and learning personalized actually grew out of the idea of, how do we continue to create uh, a like-minded community of teachers and 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 parents and students and uh, administrators around the idea of personalized learning? So, what are the um, challenges, problems that they're having, but also what are some of the success stories? And so, learning personalized was sort of an act of um, community to continue to grow the thinking of people um, in that space. And uh, that community, uh, you know, continues to be a source of vitality and energy, not, not just for me, but for people who sometimes are writing a guest blog post for the very first time. And to, to reflect back on their own experience, as well as to have the courage to write something or share something, especially when they feel uncomfortable about sharing it with their own uh, school community. Sometimes it's easier just to share on a national or international level than it is with your grade level team. <laughs> so, oh, I love that you do that. I mean, I'm kind of like you because I have my own website. I ask people to guest post. I do podcasts and I just feel it's really important to help um, especially teachers that are kind of a little uh, shy, don't feel comfortable. Yeah. Uh, nudge it, them. 
to get out there into that world. It's really good. Well, the other part too is um, uh, much of the work that happens on the Learning Personalized Site is grown out of the consulting work that I do. And so trying to um, pay attention to um, having teachers and administrators help us have a sort of a window into their journey as opposed to nobody wants to see it when you're it's three years down the road and it's pretty and polished and perfect. They want to see the ugliness <laughs> of the <laughs> first couple times. And again, many um, teachers and administrators are nervous about sharing. They're like, I don't, I don't even know if this is going to work. And I said, that's exactly why it's so important to start that journey out then so that not only can you see your own growth over time, but also it's so inspiring for other teachers to actually see and have a foothold into that level of of courage and risk-taking and the idea that you're focusing now as an engineer or an entrepreneur or an artist as opposed to somebody that is perfecting anything. And so that's the, hopefully, the, the spirit of what that community is trying to do. Well, as a consultant, I, I'm, you know, I'm finding that I can't really tell the stories because I'm not in the classroom right now. Yeah. We really need those stories. Yep. But trying to get them to understand that it's okay to show your vulnerabilities and that you took some risks and that some things didn't work and how you work through it. I think that's um, really valuable, like yeah. you said, but just trying to get them to do that is not always that easy. Um, it's, yeah, it's definitely not always easy. And I mm-hmm. think um, there's a, just a, a level of concern of, am I doing it? I don't, I'm sure you hear this a lot. Am I doing <laughs> yeah. personalized learning? Am I doing it right? Yeah. And the notion yeah. of even using the word right in that context is something that we're really trying to grow um, um educators capacity of is that it's a journey and the journey is actually um, uh, even messier because the students are going shoulder to shoulder with you on that journey. And so trying to continue to not just grow the um, design, but you're also growing the individuals and it's not just growing the individual students, but it's also growing who you are as an educator And I think the power of getting them to settle in and settle down as opposed to um, focusing on whether I'm doing it right or not right. So um, I'm going to, like I said, I could talk to you for hours. (laughs) Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of time. I, you know, I try to make it, this will be an introduction and we'll probably have you, we'll have to definitely continue (laughs) our talks. But uh, but there was one thing that you mentioned is that dispositions for students and educators. And I'm really, uh, this is one of the big pieces that I'm looking at is the skills and dispositions that we all need. Yeah. And so when you're starting to think about dispositions, um, I think it would be helpful to sort of isolate an example or an element, for, for example, that potentially you and I would Um, both agree is important. So whether you're thinking about um, goals or goal clarity, or you're thinking about feedback, um, there there are uh, related dispositions that both teachers and students need to grow into if they're going to be able to um, create meaningful, um, not just meaningful work, but meaningful conversations around both of those areas. So for example, when you're starting to think about feedback, 
what are the most important roles from a classroom teacher's point of view when they're actually engaged in providing feedback to students? And so as you're looking at that, um, it's to, to, to me, and again, based on the um, continued collaboration with Benna, feedback is as much an act of teachers engaged in questioning and problem posing as it is delivering information on how to improve it. And oftentimes we, we jump to guidance before we actually have a good understanding of what was the intention of what the students were after in the first place. From a student's point of view, from a dispositional point of view in relation to feedback, I actually have to start thinking about remaining open to continuous learning. Because if I believe that I'm doing this for the teacher, it's the teacher's work, not my work, it's likely that I'm going to jump through the desired hoops, um, but not necessarily have um, uh, sort of an opportunity to enrich what the assignment is after, but also enrich my thinking. So to me, I mean, I'm just doing a quick snapshot, that would be an interesting territory of how when we're engaged in robust and rich feedback, oftentimes we focus so much on um, making it actionable and making it regular, but it doesn't necessarily get to the heart of what feedback is trying to do on behalf of the learner. And, And we're trying to grow students' understanding, A, of the value of feedback, and B, the notion that Feedback is something that is uh, accessible, not just because you have somebody else with you, but that notion of growing through my own um, self-analysis and improvement as another aspect of it. So we could talk an hour <laughs> around feedback. Uh, in fact, um, I think it was Jennifer Gonzalez that talked about feedback versus yeah. feed forward. And I think that it, a lot of us... Um, we we were taught to give the answers. That's mm-hmm. kind of how teachers were. And now we're trying to change this. So we have the, we're just trying to have our students explore and discover on their own. And that's a whole new. It is. It's just so big. But um, I mean, like I said, I we could go on. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't. <laughs> well, and, and I think, I think part of the, the power of even this conversation is to, to really continue to think and um, collaborate with somebody like yourself is really what educators need right now, is that to have voices come in and come out of schools or school districts without really spending time and attention and energy on how things are connected and related to one another. So I know, Barbara, you're doing so much um, significant work on um, competency-based education and competency-based learning. And the idea is that we're making um, the, we're we're actually doing a deep dive in competency-based so that we can continue to grow the capacity of the personalized aspect of it as opposed to competency-based so that students can more efficiently move through school. And I think the dynamic of the synergy of those two, if you're not very intentional about how how, um, folks are describing things, then they'll see it as two or two different initiatives. Um, So that's, to me, the final word is that 
from from my point of view, and I'm sure that you're the same way. Personalized learning is not an initiative. Personalized learning is really a mindset of what is it that we're trying to do on behalf of all of our learners, including ourselves, and how can we continue to grow that in an organic way, not a top-down way. But at the same time, there are levels of practices and policies and structures and systems that make it more likely to happen. Um, so that's sort of the, 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 the conversation that I'm in um, with lots of schools and with, with you as well. So it's been a privilege and a pleasure spending some time with you. Oh, Allison, you said exactly what I wanted to, the way I wanted to <laughs> culminate everything, bring it together. And um, this was just wonderful. Thank you so much today for this wonderful conversation. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Allison Zamuda. Look for a complimentary blog post about Allison. We pull together links, resources, pictures, and more for you. And make sure you go and check out all the resources that Allison has, including some of her books. We'll put the links to those also. And then if you can, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We'd love a review. You can also subscribe to my website at barbabray.net to receive announcements and updates so you don't miss any of the conversations.